Hello. Thanks for listening to this Dharma podcast. I hope you consider that in accordance with the Buddhist tradition, all of my work as a teacher is offered without charge and supported entirely by donations only. If you'd like to support this work, you'll find a PayPal button on dharmapunksnyc.com. So hopefully tonight's talk will be of some benefit. And why not jump right in? I'm going to be talking a little bit about the bilateral brain, one of the many ways to make sense of uh, tonight's topic. Bilateral brain, we're talking about left and right hemispheres and the different ways they attend to experience and make, uh, seek security, orient us towards survival-based behaviors. The left hemispheres, we know from the work stemming all the way back from Sperry and Gazaniga, through Ramachandran and McGilchrist and so many others, is the representative uh, functions of bilateral brain. It represents life and concepts. It interprets experience into narratives which create a sense of control because without the inner narrator, it would be a little bit akin to, as I like to use the analogy of watching a nature documentary with the volume off so you can't hear the voiceover explaining what the images are. I don't know if you've ever watched a TV image, perhaps when you're at a different locale and you see images on a screen, but you can't hear what the uh, narrator is saying. And so the images aren't connected by a, an obvious thread. And it can be, of course, disorienting. And that's the way life would be if we didn't have our left hemispheres uh, interpreting everything in reducing the complexity of experience into concepts like good, bad, useful, useless, uh, positive, negative, um, and so forth, without framing all the sensations of life in a story, it would feel overwhelming. We'd feel vulnerable. We wouldn't be able to communicate our experience, nor would we be able to make schematic plans for the future. Communication, making schematic plans, making sense of life is uh, the domain of the left brain. And when there are enough negative signs or experiences encountered in the world, the left hemisphere will invariably uh, try to hew or forge order from the chaos by making plans for the future. There's nothing more common when people feel uh, alienated, frustrated, disappointed, that they will try to uh, alleviate these, uh, this sense of upheaval or overwhelm by trying to cobble together uh, goals or travel plans and so forth. Of course, during a pandemic, during COVID, where travel is problematic, to say the least, and making plans is challenging, that can 
deprive us of one of our favorite ways to alleviate the overwhelm of stressful times when the amount of triggering stimuli can become overwhelming, the disorientation associated with a constant bombardment of uh, disappointing, frustrating, bizarre news, uh, the feeling of, uh, I can only speak for myself, living in a country without a sane head uh, or uh, person in charge, where we it feels like um, in many ways uh, there's a bit of chaos uh, rather than any uh, sense of a mature thinking adults uh, orienting us towards a uh, path out of both a, um, a disaster in terms of health and economic distress and so forth. So um, when we don't have a sense of how things are going to play out. We can't easily turn experience into a story where it's difficult to frame life as a series of uh, schematic narratives. Uh, it can create what's called cognitive dread. A uh, professor named uh, Gil Story talks about uh, dread is more disabling than pain. That is being with the unknown, being with the unresolved, or not knowing how things will play out can be as painful as getting really unpleasant news. Now, meanwhile, I talked a little, this is just uh, framing the left brain. Meanwhile, subcortical non-conscious regions of the brain that are associated especially with right brain processes like the right amygdala, right orbital frontal, um, parietal, and so forth, work behind the scenes of consciousness. Uh, I also mentioned, forgot to mention the autonomic nervous system, uh, et cetera. And behind consciousness, we're scanning the world and we are neurocepting all of the nonverbal information around us for signs of threat or opportunity. The right brain has often been compared uh, or uh, to kind of an inner child. When we are very young, we tend to be far more right hemispheric. We don't use, uh, we're pre-linguistic early life, which means we're far more embodied, far more aware of the nonverbal cues that people are sending us, facial expressions, tone of voice. We're constantly scanning the back drop for signs of change or volatility. And that doesn't go away when we become adults. It simply moves into the background. So while right now you are all listening to me with your left hemispheres, but right now, if you're looking at the screen, you're taking in my facial expression, you're listening to the tone of my voice, uh, you're also aware of your body, and you're also aware of the environment that you're in. But all of that is being neurocepted, which means you're not consciously aware of it. You're unconsciously scanning the world looking for, in the backdrop of consciousness, looking for signs of security or insecurity. 
So right now, most of us are neurocepting signs of ongoing instability in the world, environmental change, everything like as I walk around my neighborhood, uh, stores closed, uh, places going out of business, uh, at, at times uh, far uh, more stress in people's uh, expressions. Sometimes you see people who are clearly struggling with emotion regulation. And so all of this can keep our autonomic nervous systems slightly ramped up. Not uh, if, if in predictable times um, or times where there's not an accumulation of stressors are nervous systems might be running at a one or a two on the hypervigilant stress scale. But in times where we are constantly neurocepting in the background signs of change or instability, the nervous system tends to uh, become more vigilant, tends to scan more, tends to orient us more towards mobilization. The sympathetic nervous system becomes more active and there can be an underlying uh, 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 development of anxiety, signal anxieties, Freud called it, which is a felt sense of instability arising uh, or a sense of a lack of control. When there's this underlying anxiety, the left hemisphere will note it, that there's this, uh, the, our attention is jumpy because we're constantly scanning for more signs of instability or threat. Um, and that can lead to catastrophizing. Catastrophizing is when we become aware that there's something unconsciously triggering a feeling of vulnerability or anxiety. The left hemisphere jumps in and tries to explain it or figure out what's going on. It can't find anything present that's a threat. So it creates threats. It creates worst case scenarios. Uh, some psychologists refer to this as negative time preference when we are anxious, but we don't know why, when we are expecting um, some kind of uh, unpleasant event, but we can't actually put our finger on it, we will then imagine extreme negative scenarios to try to actualize the pain or the discomfort rather than waiting for it to occur. There's a sense that if we visualize or tell ourselves what could could go horribly wrong. That way we won't be caught off guard and surprised. So catastrophizing is what happens when the left hemisphere becomes aware that there's an underlying right brain initiated anxiety, and but it can't figure out what exactly to be frightened of because the right hemisphere is simply triggered by an array of uh, signals that there's ongoing change or instability in the world, but there's not one pre predominant threat. So the left hemisphere will then extrapolate 
And of course, that happens a lot today. Um, it's very easy to find ourselves worrying, is, are we now on the verge of a precipice of fascism or the loss of democracy? Um, is, uh, is the recession going to slide into something far more permanent? And so forth and so on. Again, uh, we don't, as a species, like being in the unresolved. We don't like being in the unknown. We don't like feeling anxiety. So when worse comes to worse, we try to actualize the pain through catastrophizing worst-case scenarios. Now, it's not surprising that most of us will develop a variety of defense mechanisms to protect us from sliding continually into catastrophizing or neurotic anxiety. And so we protect ourselves from anxiety-provoking emotions through defense mechanisms. Defense mechanisms are not defenses against other people or uh, things in the world. They're protections against our own emotions, our own anxiety. So what are these defense mechanisms? Well, for some, it's displacement, which is an underlying feeling of anger can be displaced onto other people. So road rage, we have this underlying anger, but we don't feel we can actually express it at the person who's triggering the anger, anger perhaps Trump. So we might actually take it out on uh, somebody that we encounter in the street. Uh, dissociation, checking out, getting brain fog, uh, essentially disconnecting. Some people will do it through drugs or through TV or through numbing stimuli. Some of us will rely on reaction formation, which is um, creating the exact opposite emotion than what we feel and presenting it to others. So if we feel sad, acting in this very hyper happy upbeat way, or if we don't like someone, instead of being authentic about our disappointment, complimenting people that we dislike or acting as if they're uh, the best thing ever. But perhaps the most dominant defense mechanisms that adults rely on is intellectualization as a defense mechanism. We tend to, as we encounter more and more negative stimuli, we focus attention on ideas, interpretations of challenging situations rather than paying attention to how we feel. What is going on internally? We tend to try to always come up with the perfect way to make sense of it all. And coming from a very intellectual family, my mom was a writer, venerated philosophers. Uh, it was a very strong uh, theme in my family system. And even to this day, when uh, our beloved leader acts in a, yet another bizarre and completely uh, childish way, I find myself 
almost drawn to jumping to a video clip of Seth Myers or Stephen Colbert or Trevor Noah or Samantha B uh, turning the incredulity of uh, Trump's behavior into even more uh, fun ways of uh, turning it into ideas and stories. We don't like the unresolved or unsettled. And so we're constantly going back to ideas, words, themes, uh, concepts, or framing techniques to pull our attention away from the unsettled feelings is somatic experiences in our body or in our moods. And we're constantly looking to represent it in words or ideas. So that's the primary adult neurotic defense mechanism against underlying anxiety and feeling that the world uh, is going uh, to pot in so many different ways is to try to wrap our head around it by uh, constantly either catastrophizing or thinking our way out of it. But there's other defense mechanisms against anxiety as well. Some people will rely on productivity. The Buddha called this uh, uh, sila upadana. The Buddha, by the way, called trying to make sense of or turn life always into a story or constantly trying to frame it as didi upadana. And all of these upadanas are ways that we escape feeling being with our innate experience. Sila Upadana is being, keeping ourselves busy, productive, trying to work or constantly living life at pace as if nothing's going on. Some of us will rely on Kama Upadana, which is addictive process behavior, shopping, cooking, eating, um, sex, whatever. Uh, and some of us, uh, the last form of clinging-based distractions are self-obsession, what the Buddha called Atava Upadana. So all of these are defenses against, once again, just feeling confused, unsettled, overwhelmed, disoriented. And all of those are the true right brain uh, response to an overwhelming time, which is we might just feel this sense of tightness in our chest or tightness forever in our belly because we feel under attack or overstimulated. It might be a tendency to want to dissociate and check out. It might be a sense of heaviness in our consciousness or a jumpy awareness that won't let us sleep and relax. But again, uh, it's important to return to these nonverbal, non-cognitive approaches because they are not only primary uh, to how we respond to life, the right brain proceeds in development, the left hemisphere, and also right brain processes tend to dictate how we behave, not actually left hemispheric. In other words, we think in accordance with how we feel, not we act in accordance with how we feel, not how we think. People act in accordance with underlying emotional impulses, not with their 
uh, higher cognitive developments. So what do we do about this? How do we approach living in overwhelming, overstimulating times without relying on defenses such as catastrophizing or constantly trying to read more and more information to make sense of something that's over, overwhelming and cannot actually be made sense of, or by defending ourselves through constant productivity or addictive behaviors or self-fixation. What do we do? Well, most important, as you might have guessed, is to learn how to stop and metabolize the underlying emotions, which can mean simply taking the time to settle down and do a meditation, a mindfulness meditation, where we simply just hold maybe one image in mind of uh, some disorienting stimuli, or maybe uh, just simply no image and just check in and ask, what do I need to feel right now? What have I been running from? What do I need to check in with? And there's uh, common meditations like RAIN, recognize, acknowledge, investigate, and nurture, which we've done to uh, check in with the underlying somatic. Sometimes we need to simply um, release the tension through shaking it out, tremoring exercises, uh, TRE, and uh, um, embodied somatic approaches, uh, breath work, and so on. Anything that turns the overwhelm into a physical metabolized emotion that can be discharged. Um, most important uh, is slowing down and portioning the info that we process. When the right brain has encountered so many disorienting stimuli, it can trigger hypervigilance. And when hypervigilance is triggered, then what happens is the attention the cingulate goes haywire and starts looking for more and more threats and it becomes difficult to sleep to relax our appetite becomes in fact uh, uh, influenced we can find it difficult to settle our breath becomes shallow uh, we become far more reactive in our life and the most important way uh, to address this is through titration processing less information, portioning out the info that is entered into our awareness, which means, for example, um, slowing down how we move, how we walk, slowing down uh, how we move our head from one stimuli to another, limiting what enters our attention, for instance, limiting how much news we might read to just an overview or one or two stories a day, not constantly scanning news or social media for more and more information. It's characteristic of an ongoing trauma response that we try to process too much information too fast because we're stuck in the sympathetic hypervigilant response. So to 
adapt to overwhelming times, we have to uh, not run it like a race. We have to run it like a marathon where we pace ourselves. And pacing ourselves means to be very conscious of, of how we are uh, attending to the world. If we allow the right hemisphere when it's triggered to be in charge, we will constantly find ourselves glued to feeds, social media, small screens, to news outlets and so forth. And all that will do is keep us in the underlying spiral of anxiety, and that will turn into catastrophizing thoughts. So taking the reins, knowing uh, how and when we're taking in information, limiting or or portioning it out, very, 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 very useful. Um, titrating, moving slower. The slower we move, the slower we act, the slower we walk from one side of a room to another, that down regulates the nervous system. Famous clinical study. I like this one. I like to mention this one. They, they, um, you break a group into two groups. One group, you have walk up the stairs. The other group, you have take the elevator. And then you introduce both groups to the same stimuli. The group that walks up the stairs will be far more reactive, far more mobilized in their response. They'll always come up with reasons why they're reactive, but really what it is simply is that they've been constantly moving up until they go into the cognitive test. Those who simply take the elevator, who relax, actually are less reactive to stimuli, which means they haven't been constantly activating the sympathetic nervous system. <clears throat> It's very useful to learn how to downregulate the autonomic nervous system by locating soothing, predictable sensations and resting our attention on it. So for example, right now, take a moment if you can and just find one thing from your environment that is soothing. It could be a sound, it could be a painting. There's a very nice reproduction of a painting I have up here in this office. Um, also some nice textiles and fabrics and just resting your eyes on it and encouraging, this is your left brain uh, regulating the right. We're encouraging ourselves to just settle on something comfortable and we settle on it also by taking a nice full in-breath and out and just pulling our attention away from something that is changing. For instance, a screen or my image with my uh, constantly chattering words. So locating soothing, predictable sensations, resting our attention on it, this reorients the right hemisphere away from hypervigilance and ongoing threat detection. If you rest it on something that's predictable and soothing, such as a sound or an image, then what you're doing is essentially showing the inner child, as it were, 
the fact that there is some there remains ongoing signs of stability the right on its own without moderation for the from the left hemisphere will constantly orient towards new unsettled it's constantly mediating for threat detection so the the beauty of concentration practices meditation and stuff like that is that it retrains the right away from its ongoing hypervigilance um sometimes it is useful to reflect on times in our lives when we were uh, overwhelmed where there was a lot of unresolved information and um to uh where it felt like uh things were heading in the wrong direction and note how we somehow survived those earlier periods even though it seemed like there was so much confusion and distress in the world around us i'm rather i guess fortunate to uh have reached my this age in that i grew up in the 70s when new york was bankrupt when nixon had been uh forced out of office where uh as new york went bankrupt there was a, like today a flight away from inner cities there was a lot of crime there was the bronx was burning there was a serial killer roaming around new york and uh, right followed that when i you know growing up into the 80s there was um uh, a crack epidemic and crimes skyrocketed in new york and uh, there was uh and throughout that the horrific reagan years which were um in many ways as desultory and uh fundamentally flawed as what we're going through today so knowing that i somehow managed to get through such a period um allows me to be a little less reactive a little less needing to constantly uh feel overwhelmed by the stimuli of today because even though there wasn't a pandemic when i grew up there were many other uh, catastrophic overwhelming events going on um and lastly before we jump into our meditation um other uh, important practices to downregulate autonomic nervous system of course cultivating wise supportive friends that we can rely on to uh help us um uh rather than the ongoing uh catastrophizing have people bounce off the way we frame experience sometimes just having a friend who goes yeah i don't know i don't get what's going on either uh but having that person in our life can still help steer us away from um the uh negative extreme interpretations that the catastrophizing process will lead us towards 
And of course, there's the wonderful writing therapy by famous psychologist Pennebaker, um, who showed conclusively that when we write out our fears, overwhelm, confusion, impressions, that it actually bilaterally integrates the brain until we externalize ideas by literally writing them out longhand, we tend to be far more uh, prone to uh, right brain triggered half thoughts like that spin about or bounce about in the mind, but literally writing them out longhand, having to turn vague uh, fears into uh, language that's written out actually when we integrate the left brain it tends to be far more optimistic and it tends to make it easier to cut off repetitive intrusive ideations. So writing it out. But um, so what we're going to do tonight though, is we're going to do a mix of two meditation practice to help uh, practices to help us respond to overwhelming unsettled times we're going to do one concentration and we're going to do one mindfulness practice. So the concentration we're going to do is we're going to settle our attention on a soothing, predictable sensation that will help us downregulate our hypervigilant response, the threat detection, uh, acetylcholine, not a norepinephrine-based threat detection of the right brain. And then we're going to do some mindfulness also to help us connect with the underlying affects rather than constantly relying on thinking to protect ourselves, which invariably doesn't help us process anything. So thank you for listening and find a really comfortable seated position. And this is your time to really take care of yourself and as always, for those of you who have not been furloughed or relegated to the uh, ever-growing ranks of unemployment, if you do feel like supporting your friendly local Buddhist pastor in Brooklyn, the Venmo's Dharma Punks NYC, obviously those of you who are financially struggled, don't worry about it at all. Just relax and let's use this meditation, all of us to try to find and cultivate some tranquility. So closing the eyes and just bringing your awareness back into your body through the eyes, as it were. Imagine you could withdraw all the attention from the world and you're going to bring it internally for as a refuge. The Buddha spoke of the refuges of the Sangha, other people, the refuge of the Dharma, which is the insights of the spiritual path but also the refuge of internal awareness, mindfulness, meditation, concentration, meditation. When we can cultivate 
inner serenity. It's a refuge from the havoc and unpredictability of the world outside. So the first key is to just bring our awareness back home to the body. And for some of us, the easiest way to anchor our awareness in the body is by finding the sensations of the breath. For some of us, that will be the sensations of inhalation and exhalation at the tip of the nose. I don't use that. I tend to feel my breath more in the expansion and contraction of either the abdominal muscles or the chest cavity. But there's no right or wrong way to become aware of the breath if that's your anchor, if that's what you're going to ground your awareness or land your awareness on to keep it internally focused. Any sensation of the breath will do, but some of us don't like working with the breath. And so what you can do is find another sensation in the body that's ongoing. It could be a contact sensation, your feet resting against the floor, your sit bones connecting with a cushion or a chair, bed or sofa, couch. It could be ambient sensations in the body, the twitching of eyelids, the swallowing sensations, the sensations of the tongue in the mouth cavity or other shifting sensations like stars glimmering in a night sky. The body is just a internal universe of sensations that all can be used to ground our awareness. For this time, we're going to try to land in this moment, not making any plans or figuring out anything outside of just being aware of our internal experience or the present experience of what's directly available to us in our sensory field. Nowhere to go, nothing to do, 
no one to take care of right now, just being with our experience, not adding anything to this moment or pushing anything away, just being with this moment, especially as it lands or is expressed through our internal sensations of our body.
And trying to survey from the sensations present, be they internal, as we've been uh, gravitating towards, could be the sensation of the breath or a pleasant sensation in the body or a pleasing sensation from around you, given that our eyes are closed, that would be either a sound that's reliable, present, soothing. For some, it could be um, a fan or a uh, hum from uh, an ambient hum, or it could be a sound from outside of one's abode, or it could be an aroma. Or a sensation of touch, perhaps the feeling of contact, the sensation of lying or sitting. But find a predictable, reliable, unchanging, settling sensation, whether it's the breath or sound, or it could even be the lights flickering behind closed eyelids. If nothing in your immediate sensory environment is predictable and soothing, try to hold an image in your mind or repeat in your mind a very soothing phrase, I love you, keep going, or the Buddhist, ancient Buddhist phrase for uh, chant for peace, sabe sata suki hantu, sabe sata suki hantu. May all beings be peaceful, free of stress and suffering, sabe sata suki hantu. So either a phrase you repeat, an image you hold in mind of a pleasant, soothing, predictable environment, a soothing sound from your uh, immediate environmental stimuli or a soothing sensation in your body and just rest your attention on this soothing, settling stimuli. Just keep bringing your attention back to it. And as you do rest your attention, just relax, gravitate or orient your breath towards longer inhalations and exhalations. And just see if you can incline the mind away from the unsettled, uh, hypervigilant threat detection towards the settled, relaxed, focused state of tranquility.
So for the second part, which uh, will be shorter than the first part of the meditation, we'll be doing some mindful processing of uh, present events as disorienting and overwhelming or confusing or unsettled as they might be rather than trying to frame them all in a story right now that uh, perhaps futilely tries to turn them into a coherent frame, we're going to actually just be checking in with the feelings that very often are poorly attended to. Again, so many of our coping strategies are based on left brain uh, cognitive, intellectualizing tendencies. So we're going to actually try to check in with how the right brain has been feeling about all this behind the scenes. And so just allow one or several images, not words or stories, but images in your mind that represent uh, ongoing issues or contemporary present issues. They can be nationally oriented or from your own daily life. Images from the news or images from your where you live, something directly from your life. that you're, to, we're trying to stimulate the emotional mind into an affect, an embodied response. And just bring your attention now to the somatic markers, the front of your body, from your face, throat, shoulders, chest, stomach, the arena of the vagal nerve, which is the hub of our emotional response to, to events and experiences. So you're going to be looking uh, for signs of clenching, tightness, contraction, tremor, heat, cold, relaxation. And just keep rifling through either images or um, any other very simple stimuli to try to evoke a response and just connect with, I mean, by which I mean, bring your attention to the felt somatic markers in the front of your body, which are one of the ways that the right brain speak to us, letting us know 
how it is responding to the times we live in. The tight stomach and contracted shoulders can be an ongoing sign of mobilization, flight, anticipating a threat. Anger could be the clenched jaw, the furrowed brow, the desire, the felt impulse to shout. Overwhelm can be a fogginess in the mind, uh, inability to feel the body, and dissociative, removed from experience. Confusion can often be a jumpy awareness that can't really focus either internally or externally, just constantly moves about And if you stumble across some area in your body that is clearly tense, contracted, tight, or sense of heat or a sense of throbbing or energy, just allow it. Don't defend against it. Just allow the emotion to be unhindered, to be felt and attended to. not running from our embodied responses to life. And lastly, 
if you do contact any felt, embodied responses that are clearly evoked by uh, the images or any priming, anything you connect with, just see if you could ask these feelings if there's any way you could make life easier, take care of this vulnerable part of our self? Is there anything these feelings need? Of course, it can be strange to ask a feeling in the body a question, but it's more just dropping the thought, how can I take care of these feelings? How can I take care of myself? And to see if it evokes any response, even the simple, I need to relax more, I need to connect more, I need to, with others, I need to be kinder to myself, I need to be less critical of myself, I need to forgive others, whatever, if there's any response. Sometimes that's very helpful. So I'm going to ring uh, the bowl now. And um, when you hear the sound, uh, take your time and just gently rebalance awareness so that you're aware of uh, sight and visual stimuli from the world around you, but also maintain awareness of internal sensations as well. <laughs> 